I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. So today, I've got a, uh, a guest on to talk about a, an issue that uh, is very hotly debated in the news right now. And of course, like most uh, you know, hot-button issues, uh, people come at it from a, a, a number of directions. You, you will have people arguing really whatever suits their, their personal take on it. And of course, with, with this, uh, you've got a, a wide spectrum of, of takes. Uh, what we're talking about today, as I'm sure you noticed from the episode title, is the, the economics of immigration. And again, with, with something as, as uh, contentious and, and controversial as immigration, uh, you know, the, people are going to have their opinion formed from a lot of different directions. You're going to have people who, who make their arguments based on this idea of law and order. And your residence, do you have a lock on your door? Do you use I that do. lock? I do. Yeah, I do. You have right. an alarm? And why is that? Um, well, I mean, you lock your door. You lock your door because you want to know who's coming into your home. It's not because you hate the people outside. It's because you love the people inside. Well, that's what needs to be done with the United States of America. That's why we have a border. We have a right to know who's coming into our country and why. That's what keeps us safe. I, I, I want to talk about the law. You said you were a nation of immigrants. That may be true. We're also a nation of laws. You're going to have people making a cultural argument. Years. But, but well, that's not. But, but, that's but that not immigrants is the issue. Fault. No, excuse me. It I'm not blaming so it on immigrants. Easy. Excuse me. I'm not blaming it on you immigrants. Are. But what I am saying is that it is irrational for us to have a discussion, and for anyone to suggest that we can't have a discussion, and you're and somehow you're a bigot when you do so, is offensive to a whole. Right, host right, of what I am right, saying right, is right, that right. there are people who feel threatened by immigrants, Look, and, 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 and they're using this concept of that, that unconstitutional as a shield. Let me tell you something, Jeff. If I can just say one thing. 
The point at issue is, should America's immigration policy be used to benefit the people already here, or should it be benefiting Pakistani pushcart operators, illiterate in their own language, never mind ours, who come here, go on welfare, commit terrorism, engage in crimes? All right, let's... Why, why wouldn't you look out across the world like right. a sports team does let's... and try to get the creme de la creme? You're going to have people making an argument about national identity. Texas. The Supreme Court has already issued a mandate that you must educate all children in America. But you They're understand, Congressman. Then he said, I know then now you're limiting to it to the judge, in but in your earlier statement, you spoke to a national party. Because that's what I believe about this judge. I believe and, and this judge is going to get out. That a boy, when he but goes listen, back to his listen, country club, let's get what down a great job. Let's get down to it. I get it. You don't like the judge. That's going to play out. But the thing is, Congressman. said this is a bad decision. Three percent of Americans believe that Americans do not have a moral obligation to offer asylum to people who come to the U.S. to escape violence or political persecution in their home country. Mm -hmm. This is called hawkishness. That's not hawkishness. That's un-American. Well, so oh, so it's un-American. So you're saying that, that the United States has an obligation. Yes. Anyone who's suffering around the world has a right I, to come here and be supported break, by you and, and me. break the law. Hey, have you ever been to the Statue of Liberty? I'm sorry, this is how we okay, I, I like this statue, no, but, no, but I, I love that you're you know putting I mean? it in Kalani. So you're saying in Congo, for example, saying, there's been a war for 20 years. I'm saying yes, Every Congolese a has a moral right to come here. We you have a moral obligation a to pay for it. We are a refuge okay. to the people of the world who look to us as a shining city on the hill. Does that sound familiar? We would have. And then, of course, you're going to have people making an economic argument. For our purposes here today, this is this being an economics podcast and whatnot. We're going to focus entirely on the economics of it and sort out what in the national discourse is uh, true and what is hyperbole. So uh, to, uh, to help us walk through this, I have uh, uh, a, uh, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong, all-star, uh, Dave Vichik, uh back. Uh, you may remember him way back in episode two, the Economics of College Education, he is back, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, to talk to us about immigration. Dave, how you doing? I'm doing all right, thank you. <laughs> all right. So I, I hope I didn't hype you up too much. I mean, it's uh, a lot of expectation. I uh, you know, got to be on my A game, I guess. Yeah. Well, hey, that's that, that's what I'm going for. I like to keep the pressure high. So when we're talking about immigration, I guess we we can we should probably start off uh, doing something that. Again, a lot of media outlets out there don't do, uh, no matter which side of the political spectrum you're on, which is to, to fully define our terms. Um, defining those terms is going to help us refine the analysis, because talking about immigration as just this, this massive issue, I don't think does us much good, because like with most things, there, there's a, a great deal of nuance to it. So, uh, just starting with probably the broadest umbrella, we've got we've we've got immigration. Underneath that, there's there's really two two kinds. There's authorized and unauthorized. So, I guess what what are the different economic impacts between the two of those? Uh, well, you know the the primary difference uh, is in. Um, I guess the skills, uh, skill set in the uh, different categories of immigrants where you have authorized uh, immigration. Of course, you do have um, the uh, guest worker permits for agricultural and other manufacturing, uh, you know, industries, which 
think account for something like 500,000 uh, a year each. Uh, I could be wrong, I'll double check that stat, but um, that would represent uh, an authorized uh, immigrant who nevertheless uh, possesses a low level of uh, skills relative uh, to the labor market. Mm. Um, for the most part though, authorized immigrants uh, come and stay in the United States based on a competitive um, grant process essentially. Um, and they're decided on on the basis of their, you know, skill levels more or less, although uh, the United States does not um, do the same kind of work as other uh, countries such as Canada and, um, you know, Europe, uh, several European countries where they decide from year to year uh, what uh, skill uh, mixture and what uh, industries they want represented. Um, and then tailor their immigration towards that. Nevertheless, um, you know the uh, the formal authorized immigrants in the United States are generally um, better educated. Um, they have uh, actually a higher skill set, and they're working in you know technology and other uh, innovation related industries. Um, so the impacts that they have obviously are going to be disparate because they affect uh, different parts of the labor market. And uh, I guess we can get into that more as we get into the, the weeds here. Yeah. Well, and, and then, like, again, you'd mentioned, you know, a country like Canada who who tailors their, their immigration authorizations based on... Uh, I hesitate to use the word because it, it sounds scarier than it is, but but a kind of social engineering. They, they look out at their economy and they say, okay, this is, this is what we need right now, so this is what we'll take. Um... I mean, like with most things in economics, there's going to be a cost-benefit to that approach. Uh, and, and I would imagine that's why the U.S., uh, you know, that kind of cost-benefit analysis is why the U.S. Doesn't, doesn't do that. So I guess what are the benefits of that kind of, the, the social engineering take on immigration? Um, you know, I don't know if it's clear that there are any, uh, I mean, you can find an academic study uh to speak to pretty much anything and give you some kind of estimate. Um, so of course, uh, I think there are going to be uh, differences between the two systems and uh, probably money left on the table mm. either way. Um, but I think in the general uh, sense, well, actually, so the argument that I came here to make is that immigration, all forms of it, authorized and unauthorized, um, is a benefit to the U.S. economy, um, to any economy generally. Um, more than that, it's just, uh, you know, reiteration of natural forces. Um, borders are, you know, uh, constitutionally synthetic uh, devices. Um, and, uh, you know, people and information um, have a, a natural gravity, uh, or I suppose you could think of it as osmosis moving to. Uh, from an area of uh, higher pressure to lower pressure, people just are going to seek out um, better opportunities wherever they can find it. And uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to um, design your immigration policy starting with that as a touchstone and uh, see you know, how you can work within that parameter to uh, create the greatest uh, efficiency for your economy um, to make sure that you're not essentially fighting against the stream. Uh, and so in the case of actually 
um, you know, assessing from year to year which industries um, require to do that kind of social engineering uh, with your immigration policy makes a lot of sense um, because then you are not overstressing um, industries where um, competition um, may be pushing too many, um, you know, uh, native born or just naturalized uh, citizens out of uh, competition or out of uh, the labor market rather mm-hmm. um, or impacting wages too heavily but also uh, you want to be um, you know giving a, a boost to those industries uh, that um, uh, that could use a little bit of reinforcement and I think uh, time and time again what you see is that in the long run you know, although there are always going to be winners and losers, um, especially in uh, high uh, skill sectors of the labor market, uh, what you see is that um, wages go up um, because it, for a variety of reasons, um, just from the very fact that uh, you have um, more competition, um, a greater populace um, bringing ideas to the table um, you're going to get uh, better people working um, in the firms that are are active within an industry you're going to get new firms being started um, and ultimately what you see is uh, a faster pace of innovation um, so people can uh, are essentially more productive Mm -hmm. Um, and that in the long run uh, uh, is a is a buoy to uh, salaries and uh, we can talk about the there is sort of a disparate effect that happens um, on the low skill side but you know it's something that we can uh, get into as yeah. we move forward. Well, and again, like yeah, like like you're saying with the 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 social engineering approach uh, allows you to again fill fill holes in your economy. We're we're short on you know radiologists, so we'll. Well, we'll effectively, uh, talking about labor like it's a commodity, we'll import some and and fill those gaps. And I think on its face, it's one of those systems that sounds pretty good. It sounds like it makes sense, of course. Of course, the problem you're always going to run into is how much confidence do you have in uh, your, the, the overall uh, government of your country or or you know whoever's making that call to accurately predict the needs of your economy year to year and uh, you know again the the uh, we're working with some pretty sophisticated uh, analytical tools these days I would imagine if you look at Canada they're probably uh, they've probably got a pretty high batting average on <clears throat> you know their their ability to accurately predict yes we need X number of this profession so we're gonna let that number in well and with Canada you're talking about a much smaller economy too yeah. um, which makes everything easier um, because for the same reason I would imagine that um, a smaller firm uh, just has lower um, managerial costs essentially um, and a much less it, smaller firms can be more nimble um, because um, everybody kind of knows each other mm. um, the managerial oversight um, is going to be a lot more efficient 
um, because uh, you you know you're not you know the the top executives aren't peering through the lens or through five or six lenses of middle management to see what is happening with operations. The same is true in a sense uh, at the national level when you're talking about the macro economy. Um, the United States is going to have a huge challenge uh, in this regard because um, you know Canada has a territorial uh, structure as well, just like we have states, mm. but they have less of them. Um, and again, it's, it's a smaller population um, where you may, uh, I, I'm not an expert on the Canadian economy, so I, I don't know, but I would imagine that um, given you know the, the size of their economy, given the size of their population, um, you talk about uh, maybe not a territory, but individual um, urban municipalities, there's probably one or two big industries that are happening in each of them. And so you can kind of keep your eye on the ball a little bit more. Um, and also, one of, you can talk about the fact that um, smaller countries just tend to be um, closer together in terms of their political spectrum. Uh, political and cultural spectrum is not as uh, diverse, which means that everybody kind of wants to move in the same direction. Mm. Whereas in the United States, you have 50 different states each with a great amount of uh, essentially veto power, ability to uh, determine their own fate, uh, make their own laws. Um, and then you have a huge uh, diversity in the uh, political spectrum and the cultural spectrum. And, you know, this is, uh, this makes anything that you want to institute on a national level, you call it social engineering. Um, which, you know, technically it is, um, but you can also just call it economic planning. Mm. Um, instituting that, on, uh, you know, from a federal uh, vantage point is just going to be um, very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, so you have Congress to deal with. They, they write the laws. So even if you are a very popular administration, um, like the Obama administration was for most of the time that, uh, you know, Obama was president, um, you may f uh, face an intransigent uh, Congress uh, dominated either uh, one or both houses by the opposition party that for a variety of reasons um, wants to oppose uh, any attempt to uh, you know intelligently plan on that basis um, because again like I said there's always going to be winners and losers and if you're representing a population that is going to you know, experience a disproportional amount of losers, um, regardless of whether the net effect is going to be a positive, um, you are going to, and actually it is your, um, you know, constitutional responsibility to represent um, against that particular um, piece of legislation, that plan. Um, but if you're an influential uh, member of Congress, um, and if you represent a faction within Congress, then it becomes even more, or you know, even better yet, um, you have the. I don't want to get too cynical so early, but <laughs> it kind of took me into this tangent. Um, you, uh, you know, let's say that you have a relationship with uh, an exclusive donor list of you know private organizations and um, you know big money individuals, um, then. Your will, you know, you may be representing uh, a district um, with a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand people, um, but you can exercise your will over um, 
essentially the entire populace of the United States. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I'm not an expert on, on Canada or um, the parliamentary, um, you know, uh, process in other countries, other developed nations. I imagine some this goes on to a certain extent, but it's just smaller countries. You're you're more nimble. Yeah. Well, and and uh, you got onto something there that that I think is uh, is especially for for people listening to this that again watch this issue get debated uh, and play out. You know, on the news is you do tend to see uh, people either. Uh, Portraying immigration as the the death nail in the American economy, or on the flip side of it, you have people saying, "No, immigration is good," and you run into that problem where you've got the guy out there saying what what I think is largely the the consensus among economists is that no, Im- immigration is is overall good for the economy. It, uh, you know, spurs innovation. It, it, it creates a, a lot of very good market forces that we want. But that, uh, that analysis of it can be fairly easily contrasted by a single person saying, yeah, but I lost my job to an immigrant. And, and again, that happens. That's, that's, that's reality. And I think it's important to understand that in terms of economics, when we talk about something being overall good, the, the key word there is overall. Uh, the, the old truism that uh, economists don't have to be right all the time, they just have to be right on average, uh, is, is very, you know, when you're doing this kind of analysis, you're looking at a, 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 a trend line, which unfortunately does not encapsulate every individual experience. Generally speaking, yes, the, the trend line is, is heading upwards, you know, when you're talking about the benefit, the economic benefits of immigration. But there, like you said, there are going to be losers. Well, so, uh, two things. Um, one, I don't like that statement. Economists, uh, <laughs> economists have to be right on average. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you actually think about it, um, you're either right or you're wrong. Um, that is a, uh, you know black and white um, categorization. Um, so if you're right on average, that means you're also wrong on average. Mm. Um, and if you're right as much as you're wrong, then you might as well just be guessing. Um, so Which a lot of people think economists do. Yeah, that's why it's a popular saying, but it's not true. Um, economists um, vary with uh, the degree of, you know, prof- uh, prophetic um, content in their forecasts it's very hard to um, make a positive statement about it's like predicting the weather really. mm-hmm. and I think we actually talked about that uh, last time uh, I was on your uh, very fine program <laughs> um, but uh, they have more they're putting more knowledge content into uh, it than, you know into their analysis and into their their forecast than um, a random person, um, you know, an average person yeah. without any specific economic training would. Um, and so the insights that they yield um, should be uh, limited. Uh, you know, this is a social science, uh, and therefore science. Mm. Um, so you shouldn't be making a, gener- a, a vast generalization, but rather looking at, you know, discrete um, 
phenomenon and making a, a, a judgment about that given evidence. Um, but I think that the, the, you know, the, the insights that we've gained from economics as a whole are, um, better than just guessing. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the other thing I was going to say is anymore. Um, <laughs> well, and, and I will say, you know, again, it's, it's that important thing to, to understand is that for something to be overall good doesn't mean that everyone benefits from it. It means that, like, with I, again, I'm sure my, my audience is, is getting tired of hearing this, but it, it, it means that it depends. It means that you're talking about a trade-off in that, okay, by, by allowing immigration, uh, let's say for every one U.S. domestic worker who loses his job to two incoming immigrants, uh, let's say three of them get better jobs because of the markets that are created by that immigration. So is that worth it? Is the three jobs created worth the one job eliminate or the, the one job lost and you know that's for everyone to answer on their own or again if if, if you say no three to one is not a good ratio okay well then where is the ratio is it six to one six jobs created for every one job lost uh, you know figuring out where that is sort of depends on on who you are well, so um, if you take into consideration that uh, immigrants account for, and I'm forgetting the, the statistic on that, but it is um, certainly a, a smaller minority of the overall uh, labor force in America. Mm. Um, the, uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is even if you displace one uh, job as a uh, you know, because a immigrant comes in and takes it, um, if they are creating even, let's say, let's say for instance that it's twenty percent. I don't know what the actual number is, but let's say twenty percent of the labor force in America. I think it's probably less, probably like 12 percent. But um, let's say that it's twenty percent. Um, if bringing in one immigrant knocks uh, one uh, citizen from having a job, um, if nevertheless for that one immigrant you then create uh, even 1.3 more jobs mm -hmm. um, because of the overall mix in the labor force I think you're still coming out uh, on top because that means that um, you know over I obviously can't have like you know 0.3 of a job or 0.1 mm -hmm. of a job whatever but that, that just means over a larger number of people larger number of interactions um, you know that person that lost the job um, which was taken by an immigrant is going to be um, uh, there are more people out there in the economy that are going to gain a job. I think what's more important is to look at what types of jobs are going to be created as a result of immigration. Um, are they the types of jobs that we want to be fostering? Um, are they the types of jobs that pay a living wage? Mm. Um, and what you see uh, from, you know, at least authorized immigration, high skill uh, immigrants coming into America, um, high education, um, you see increasing innovation and uh, in fact the founding of new, uh, so new intellectual property, um, new ventures, um, 
and that creates the type of jobs that we want. Um, work in the innovation sector, um, which is high paying. Um, it pays a li- more than a living wage. Um, that's you know that is a career paying job. That um, you, you know you have seen a sort of hollowing out of the middle class in America um, because um, there is now like this division um, between service sector and um, some remaining uh, traditional blue collar labor um, and other uh, unskilled uh, labor on the low end and then high skilled services and innovation work on the high end. Um, Nevertheless though, if you're creating uh, a new venture, like say, maybe not a new Facebook, but let's say a Zynga or something, Mm. um, you know, something that, that builds on the success of an earlier venture, and you can hire um, 2,000 more people uh, in America um, that are getting paid salaries of $50,000 and up. Mm. Um, I would say that's worth it, you know? And in fact, to that, um, even though I haven't prepped all my stats for today, I can tell you that um, in 2006, um, so this is just a point uh, sample, um, but I think representative nevertheless, uh, 2006, 25% uh, of founders of new high-tech companies with sales of over one million dollars were uh, immigrants whereas the overall oh, there is the overall immigration uh, immigrant population rather for that same time period was 12 percent hmm. so actually I did remember the, the statistic <laughs> I just anyway um, yeah so over double also uh, on that same note between 1990 and 2000 um, 26% of uh, U.S. Nobel Prize recipients were immigrants. Hmm. Um, so more than half, uh, or more than double the uh, is the ratio of how much they're overrepresented. Um, but that is the social engineering aspect of it. That's because we select for, um, you know, a lot of people uh, find their um, legal status in America through... Um, working with an educational institution, mm. you know, whether it's as a graduate student um, or whether they actually come as a, uh, a visiting professor, eventually a, um, uh, a tenured professor, mm. um, because, I mean, hey, we have the most expensive private universities in the world. They're also among the best universities in the world. Um, so they are going to be very competitive in attracting talent. and. Um, and that's at least one thing that um, traditionally, uh, at least within the last half century, the U.S. has been on board with. Actually, beyond that, I mean, you know, talk about back to World War Two uh, and all the, um, you know, ex-German scientists that we <laughs> smuggled over here, including Albert Einstein. What? I, I don't know. That doesn't sound like something we'd do. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, through, uh, I mean... Uh, Operation Paperclip was a was was essentially a, a, an immigration program. Well, and you know Einstein was uh, Jewish, so mm-hmm. um, we might have saved his life. I mean, it's a horrible thing to think that. I know this is a, a, an extreme tangent, but it occurs to me like, what would Hitler have done if he if you know or the SS have done if they had Einstein's uh, whatever file on their desk. Mm-hmm. Um, do they send him to a concentration camp, or do they say, you know, if like it's in the national interest, this one we should save? Um, either way, it's it's awful, obviously. But um, actually, sending Einstein to the concentration camp, like, 
that's insane. That's not just, um, you know, waste. That's just, anyway, whatever. Yeah. Got carried away with that thought. Yeah, no worries. Uh, but, but no, and, and again, I think it comes back to, you, you can take that actually even further back. You, re, you read the, uh, the writings of Thomas Jefferson. The whole idea was that in competing with Europe at the, at the country's founding, we were operating from a disadvantage. We had a, a, a primarily agrarian society uh, of what Europe would have considered a bunch of rednecks uh, running around in, you know, shacks well, in the woods. Because uh, I'll, I'll add that um, parts of the, the colonies were essentially penal colonies mm. at their inception. Georgia was explicitly um, founded as a penal uh, colony uh, where England just shipped a bunch of its, you know, quote unquote, human detritus. <laughs> well, well, and even even the the original pilgrims were, were people that uh, England thought were so lame that they needed to get them out. Yeah, exactly. They, they they were interfering with with England enjoying the enlightenment or the the late Renaissance and into the early Enlightenment. Yeah, take your buckle hats and go. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, you know, Jefferson recognized we were operating from a disadvantage in in the the greater global or really at the time more transatlantic relationship, mm. and so the whole concept behind the U.S. early U.S. immigration program was to make it as open door as possible and to make the U.S. a desirable place for people to come, mainly so we could poach talent from Europe. Uh, and we've been doing that ever since, and now expanded beyond Europe and into the rest yeah, of the world. Exactly. Um, yeah, significantly uh, more so in the last several decades from uh, Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think that you know to to step aside from the um, academic um, stance here for a moment, but just to talk from you know personal experience at ground level, uh, so to speak. Um, I think you can start to tell um, how influential that has been as you see, um, you know, so much of the, uh, as I say, innovation workers, high-tech workers um, that are uh, present out there today uh, working in, um, you know, the uh, uh, most successful firms um, are either... Uh, first generation, they, they've actually just uh, come over from either India or China or uh, somewhere else on the Pacific Rim, um, or they are second or third generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, their parents came over, uh, or their, their grandparents came over, and um, they, you know, have built upon that uh, success and, um, and entered into that. Uh, uh, so the, 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 the changing content, it's not just like white men um, sitting around in a room like inventing the internet anymore <laughs> it's uh, it's more and more um, you know uh, especially it seems to me at least um, you know uh, Asian and, and other uh, immigrants coming in and assisting the uh, <laughs> working almost as a you know labor uh, compliments to the uh, <laughs> the traditional like um, you know, over-enfranchised white men. Mm. But of course, like you'd mentioned, that that side of it, that's only about half the story. 
Because then, then you have the, again, the separate uh, issue of low-skill low skill authorized and low-skill unauthorized immigration into the U.S. And again, I think, you know, a lot of media outlets confound the two, depending on which side of the argument they're trying to argue. Uh, if they're pro-immigration, then every immigrant is a high-skill immigrant. If they're anti-immigration, every immigrant is a low-skill immigrant. So understanding that there's a, that there's that there is a distinction and we're really talking about almost but not quite two separate issues okay so when as I as we're finding out uh, when you actually go in to uh, doing a demographic breakdown of uh, the various types of immigrants that are present in America and let's be clear immigrant um, just refers to any individual um, who is in the United States for any length of time um, who was born in another country. Um, so right away, uh, you start encountering uh, some problems there because um, you're looking at people who are here for a variety of purposes on a variety of time spans. Um, you have people that are just here for you know a week, two weeks, uh, a couple months maybe for business or under some kind of educational program, um, people that are here for a more on a more permanent basis uh, on educational programs and on uh, work-related uh, programs. You also have to remember that there are people immigrating um, because of uh, their immediate family um, or um, gaining permanent uh, legal permanent residence um, as a result of uh, marriage. Um, there are also people coming into the country um, winning a uh, permanent status here um, because they are simply related, although maybe not part of their immediate family, to people that are already legal residents in the United States. Um, so all of these things make it very difficult to um, break down um, where, uh, where the, the, the junctures are between different groups, subsets of uh Immigrants. Um, well, it makes it impossible to paint the issue with the broad brush. Yeah, because you're—I mean, right there—you named maybe fourteen different subgroups yeah. that that all have a different dynamic and are all gonna whatever effect they're gonna have on the economy, be it positive or negative, is it may be isolated to just that subgroup. Right. So, um, ignoring the people that are here on a very uh, you know immediate basis um, we can say that uh, on a top line number there are 43.7 million immigrants residing in the United States um, that's that's a figure from 2016 which um, it's really hard to get um, any figure that's more recent than that um, that's about 13.5 percent of the total US population in that year which is around 325 million um, so yeah, it's, it's a sizable, um, uh, certainly significant proportion of our population. Now, of the 43.7 million uh, residents, uh, resident immigrants, that is, um, about 11.5, 11.4 uh, million of them are going to be unauthorized. Um, and of that population, a majority of them is going to be coming from Mexico and from the Northern Triangle 
countries in Central America. So you think of El Salvador, Honduras. Um, it's not a huge majority. I think if you total those two groups together, you're talking about around 65%, I want to say. I'm ballparking some of these figures, so take it with a grain of salt. But um, it's still, you know, by far the majority. And it's what we would expect given um, the proximity, um, the huge expanse of the border um, between uh, Mexico and their, and by extension Central America mm. and the southern United States, um, and given the economic disparity uh, between the two countries. Um, now, one thing I will say about that too, um, and actually uh, this spurs to something that we were talking about before we, we started recording, um, the uh, by and large uh, you see, you know, uh, coming from those uh, Central American countries in Mexico, uh, the characteristic of um, immigrants that you get is low education, low skill, uh, laborers predominantly, um, and uh, especially people who have um, less than a high school education. Um, now that group of people by large, and I should mention, um, just to refer back, because I got a statistic kind of way in error earlier, but um, the official authorized uh, low-skilled uh, immigration uh, policy, the H-2A and the H-2B, accounts for maybe 130,000 um, every year, um, r roughly split evenly between the two programs, um, where one is for agricultural workers and one is for other uh, um, industry, you know, labor uh, positions. Um, so it accounts for a pretty small slice of the overall uh, unauthorized, uh, or if you compare it to the, the unauthorized uh, population, it's a pretty small slice. Um, the rest of that is predominantly, like I said, low-skill um, immigrants, and that's where all the uh, a lot of the political debate, at least, is centered around. Um, because we see these people as coming in and displacing, you know, good American jobs. Um, of course, the counter to that is that these are um, bad American jobs, in fact. Mm. I mean, they're not jobs that most people would want to do, would not be their first choice. Um, and they're also jobs that don't face a lot of competition from Americans anymore. Uh, I mean, we have progressed in the last 60 years in America from a society where, you know, close to 50% of our residents had less than a high school population to today where that figure is closer to about 8% having mm. less than a high school population. I mean, it's still a significant, uh, you know, subgroup of the American labor force, but um, it's a very small one. It's in decline. And as a result, uh, those jobs which in fact need to be done uh, are undercompeted for and um, you know having for better or for worse uh, those industries um, predominantly agriculture um, some manufacturing some service uh, sector um, and construction as well um, those industries have experienced a boon uh, from having uh, the huge augmentation of uh, foreign-born, low-skill uh, workers um, who are even uh, willing to accept uh, a lower wage because they can't participate in the uh, legal, you know, above-ground uh, labor market. 
Um, well, but there you get into sort of a chicken and the egg issue is are the wages for those those jobs low and therefore American, uh, you know, uh, d- uh, domestically born Americans don't want to do them because, uh, you know, having a uh, higher standard of living and thus the only people that can fill them are foreign born uh, immigrants that's kind of repetitive. I don't know why. Anyway, or is the case that uh, the wages at those jobs would be higher if those jobs were being filled by uh, by domestically born Americans, rather than employers having the option of hiring uh, at a much lower wage uh, immigrants who 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 are not here in an authorized legal status. Yeah. Um, of course, then you got to take that one step further and say, okay, let's assume that's true for a second, and that the wages for low-skill jobs would be higher if if the uh, unauthorized immigrant option was not available to employers. But then, of course, prices would be higher uh, because the overhead for again, picking crops or, or doing, you know, again, low-skill manufacturing, uh, you know, uh, work goes up because they have to pay to to the domestically born standard of living, which means then they're going to have to charge more for the end product. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of those those kind of circles you can, you can kind of go around several times before you realize that you're going in a loop or, or like a logical loop. And, and I, yeah, I don't know precisely, again, which, which one comes first on that. Again, is, is, it, is it the, the immigrants that, that allow for those lower wages, or is that the equilibrium wage for that job? And it's now just below what a high school-educated, domestically-born American citizen is willing to work for. Yeah, so let me break that down in a, a couple of different ways. Um, first of all, let's talk about uh, the different sectors of um, you know trade uh, or of the labor market that um, these unauthorized, uh, like I said, low-skill laborers find themselves in. Most of them are um, unimportable. Um, agriculture obviously has to be done in situ in the country. Mm. You can't uh, I mean, we can buy and import agricultural products from abroad, um, but if we want to have a domestic agricultural, um, you know, trade at all, you know, we have to grow our own crops. It, it um, literally has to grow domestically. Exactly. And um, you can have an argument there, but at the end of the day, we're a gigantic country um, in a very temperate climate zone um, with a lot of open space as a result of our, you know, essentially late colonization. Um, so if we didn't have agriculture as a viable trade, um, we would just have a lot of uh, undeveloped natural resources, mm. um, which would be great for people that like hiking in prairies. Um, but for the rest of the country, um, you know, that is, that is one of our big uh, exports still to this day to the world. Um, is our agricultural product and it's uh, also the reason why um, you know making a salad at home can be affordable um, depending on where you shop Mm. 
um, if you're not getting you know the the organic extra crunchy stuff yeah um, or you know if we had to import everything we'd be like Japan where um, food co- you know you go out um, to buy a head of lettuce and you're spending uh, the equivalent of like eight to ten US dollars mm. um, that might be where we'd be at um, but don't take my word for it there are actual statistics um, <laughs> What statistics in an economics discussion? I know it's uh, it's crazy, Dave. Um, no, uh, they, they there have actually been uh, a number, well, many many studies uh, looking at um, the uh, the impacts of uh, uh, immigration of all forms um, on price, uh, mm. domestic prices, and um, you know some studies have estimated that. Uh, the worldwide price that there first of all there's a the general consensus seems to be that there's an inverse uh, relationship between immigration flows um, and the uh, price of domestic goods and services mm. um, now some have estimated that figure to be uh, the price elasticity to be as high as 16% which means that if we saw a hundred percent increase in immigration we would see a 16% drop in uh, price uh, overall price of goods and services. Mm. Um, that figure itself may be somewhat uh, of, while accurate for a total basket of goods, um, the effect may be somewhat underplayed by the fact that um, the there are specific areas where you see a disproportional decrease in prices, um, which are particularly um, immigrant intensive uh, services uh, you think of um, you know laundering services you think of uh, gardening services you think of uh, home care cleaning services um, uh, babysitting services um, those things are going to the prices for those uh, services are going to decrease uh, more than average um, more than that average figure um, also the price of staple goods uh, is going to um, decrease more than average because of the influx of immigrants while creating uh, greater demand on whole, which of course would tend to raise prices. Um, nevertheless, you face a populate, you find a, a greater population with a higher fiscal constraint. Um, so they are more willing uh, to expand their search parameters for goods. Um, and they have a higher uh, price elasticity of consumption, which I, now we're going really into like uh, textbook economic stuff. But basically, that just means that for every dollar you raise the price on a given item, um, more of them are going to stop buying that item. More of that group of people are going to stop buying that item than the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. And that tends to actually drive prices down um, for, like I said, staple goods. Um, so, yeah. Just think of your flour. Think of your, um, you know, produce, yeah. um, can of beans, uh, milk, that kind of stuff. And that's actually good for us all because at the end of the day, um, I think it's important for people to be able to um, be able to fill their shopping basket with, um, you know, the basic constituents of a, a healthy meal plan at an affordable rate. Um, so. You know, even when you're talking about um, unauthorized uh, immigration, it's having a salutary effect on um, 
the price that we spend at the grocery store and you know at, at various other um, places in our economy. Well, again, it, it circles back then to the, to the idea of that trade-off of 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 whatever negative effects of unauthorized immigration you want to list, and and there are and can be many. You then have to put that on the scales next to uh, the realized effect of again lower prices and which one's more important. Uh, and again, I, I don't know that there is a definitive answer to that question. It it really depends on who you are and what you prioritize. But you know, you're rather than looking at the issue as this kind of black and white right and wrong it is this like most economic issues it's it's a trade-off and pick pick which one you want uh, choose wisely uh but uh yeah so you know again breaking that out into its its various subcomponents and it does get it does get hairy at, at a certain point because there are a lot of distinctions to be made and they're they're important distinctions it's not semantic it's you know the, these different types of immigrants different groups of immigrants are going to have wildly different impacts or in some cases very little impact on the economy as a whole and lumping them all together into into one big issue doesn't really do the issue justice now i'm sure most people listening uh, out there uh, today, uh, the the most recent uh, U.S. immigration hubbub is, of course, over uh, DACA. Um, now, the cost benefit for for specifically DACA people, uh, what are we talking about there? Um, well, it's. So th- this issue is a little bit difficult to think about as well, um, because, you know, the way that I want to look at it is is as a policy planner, um, as an ambassador for the economy as a whole. Mm-hmm. And you have to realize that the uh, DACA recipients are part of that economy, even though they, um, you know, may have been born in another country. Um, they've been living here and they've been um adding to our economy um well i think that is something that often gets lost when when because you can you can go out there you can find the statistics of of how uh both authorized or unauthorized immigrants can take away from the uh the the u.s economy but we we tend to forget that they are if you're if you're an immigrant whatever your status living here you're a consumer at some point you're buying something you're, you know, again, feeding back in, you're, you're contributing towards demand for goods, you're contributing towards the purchase of goods, which then, of course, cycles into the bigger economy. Yeah, so here's, here's uh, the biggest impact that it's going to have. Um, obviously, there's going to be a large, a significant and large impact in um, the salaries that uh, DACA recipients are being paid for their work. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, a uh, summary statistic for that is uh, 2015, DACA eligible workers earned about $20 billion, of which $3 billion was paid in the form of federal, state, and local taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's certainly not nothing. Um, 
as a, as a result of the rollback uh, of DACA, um, you know, people every day are losing their um, legal right to be here uh, in the United States as their uh, DACA status expires. They're not able to renew it um, or they refuse to renew it because it's uncertain whether um, they will, you know, the, the, the renewal process will be honored. Um, and that they won't just be put on a list for deportation. Mm. Um, so the option for them is uh, twofold. Um, either you um, self-deport um, or you uh, choose to become part of the unauthorized uh, immigrant population in the United States and just hope that um, you know ICE loses your information or doesn't follow through on on uh, on finding you and kicking you out mm. um i would argue that neither are good uh for us uh as a um as a society um because at the end of the day um depending on how long they've been living here uh you know many of uh, these individuals have come um as essentially infants or very young children um they may not even be able to speak the language uh in the country uh, of origin uh, from which they were born mm-hmm. um, although you know because of the uh, the nature of you know an ethnic household many of them still do um, but at the end of the day we as taxpayers paid for them to go to school uh, at, at public uh, schools around the nation um, and that represents an investment in future productivity that is suddenly going to be wiped off the table if they lose their legal status to work in this country because um, when that if and when that happens, uh, they lose uh, the uh, opportunity to participate in a lot of different sectors in the labor market, um, just as any other unauthorized uh, immigrant cannot, you know, work in, a, in any any number of uh, positions. Um, so their career earning potential, if they decide to stay here, is dramatically reduced, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately that means uh, a loss for us in the form of productivity. Um, and I know you can say, well, won't, you know, a qualified uh, native born, um, you know, worker step in and fill their place to a certain extent? Yes. Um, but uh, one, you know, you have to think about uh, just a numbers game. Um, how many uh, qualified replacements are there? Um, but much more importantly, you have to think about the cost uh, that a firm incurs uh, to replace a worker, um, which uh, can be quite considerable. And in fact, um, given the current uh, scenario of uh, people's DACA um, certification uh, expiring, until the end of May of this year, every single day, companies will incur an estimated uh, restaffing uh, cost cumulatively of uh, about $375,000. Uh, it's incredibly expensive um, to uh, retrain or to train um, you know, employees. And in fact, if anybody wants to go back to that podcast that I was on before, <laughs> uh, we talk about um, the, uh, you know, a, a theory of job placement whereby the, uh, the education that you receive uh, in your primary and secondary, and if you decide to go to post-secondary education, um, is really more of a credentialing experience, just to show that you have, are the caliber of individual 
that um, should be employed in a you know in a given position mm. to show that uh, make yourself attractive to a potential employer. Um, most of your actual know-how for how you perform your your job duties is trained on site and uh, relies relatively little on your formal training, um, and that's why um, this the issue of, of DACA is I think um, I think that's where this is the most um, fiscally painful for us uh, as a nation um, if we're thinking about on whole. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and again, it's that idea of, you know, even, even if the uh, basic education level, basic uh, training level to get that job when the DACA recipient had started it was simply a high school diploma, you know, no, no experience. If they've been working there for 10, 15 years, the, what they are as an employee is wrapped up in that 10 to 15 years. And recreating that takes 10 to 15 years. Uh, or you have to go out and find somebody else who's been working in the, in the right. job for 10 to 15 years. And that person probably already has a job. So you're not really replacing them with... The same caliber, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you either have to replace them, you, you start from scratch, you find somebody who, again, no experience, high school diploma, and you start them building towards that, the, the, the caliber of employee you would be after 10 to 15 years of training and knowledge and experience. Uh, or, again, you got to pay extra for somebody who does have that. And so either way, to, to the... To the company, to the the business, to, to the industry, it, it's a financial loss because again, recreating that employee who who's been working for you that long it can be a costly process. Either paid out through having to bring somebody in and train them up and accept the losses that you're going to experience by them not being at that kind of veteran level that that your your former employee was. Or you find somebody who is at the same level, but the salary you're going to wind up having to pay them is much higher because they know that they have 10 to 15 years of experience in this field. So they're not going to take an entry level salary. And yeah, that can be, I mean, again, what was it, 374,000? Something like that. I mean, yeah, three seventy. You know, talking about a couple thousand each way. But that's every day. Yeah. You know, this, I mean, that's 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 a huge millions show. of dollars a week. You know, billions of dollars of the course of um, just a couple months. And uh, uh, I think another point that not a lot of people are going to get to um, in uh, in their you know analysis of this because because of the quick hit style of a media presentation. Um, is that those DACA recipients who have essentially lived their whole lives in the United States, who have built careers in the United States, um, who have legal, uh, you know, residents in the United States, and who should eventually be given a path to permanent residency uh, in this country, in my opinion, at least, um, they represent, you know, potentially a bridge of economic opportunity to other people in their ethnic community uh, that they come from. And, and further, um, they represent a source of income for local economies, um, which is vital. Um, if you want to talk about the penetration of 
uh, illegal gangs, um, of uh, you know illegal activity in general, um, in you know uh, low income uh, impacted urban communities, uh, and if you want to talk about that happening in ethnic enclaves, um, the central determinant for that is always going to be um, the lack of economic opportunity, the lack of a better option, as it were, um, for the people that make the decision to participate in the illicit economy. And by getting rid of, um, by wiping DACA uh, recipients uh, off of the um, economic landscape of America, uh, you are essentially uh, burning down those bridges, um, which, and, and burning down, and, and removing you know, a critical source of uh, lifeblood for these communities. Um, so if anything, uh, I would say um, DACA is probably a, a pro-crime, or the, the repeal of DACA is a pro-crime uh, position. Because it eliminates the, the, the viable option. Yeah, it reduces the, the potential for, for growth uh, in that area over generations, you know. Well, and then, so... I mean, you're going to find studies out there. I, I did read one by a guy named George Borges uh, from right. 2016, where he was able to actually tie uh, mass immigration to uh, overall drops in wages. Uh, and again, I, I you know, there's also, you know, within the, the <laughs> in response to that paper... I think I read three more that 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 pick it apart and and you know want to want to uh, peel back a lot of the Borges analysis. But I mean, in, in your reading, have you seen that kind of the the butting of heads, de- depending on the way you want to look at the information? Um, well, yeah, I I've seen uh, Borges or Borjas, however. It's- pronounced cited uh, a couple of times so obviously he's a notable researcher in this area um yeah because he's out of harvard but uh what's interesting is that one of the sort of summary reports um that i read which was produced by um notable academic uh by the name of uh let me just properly attribute this uh, gordon h hansen he's at uh uc uh sd mm-hmm. um he uh Worked with the Migration Policy Institute, uh, which is a, a nonprofit uh, institute that studies uh, issues of uh, immigration uh, and, and migration policy in America. Um, and this is a report from uh, 2009. Um, he actually constructs an estimate for the overall impact um, on uh, on the, the U.S. GDP um, using Borges's own uh, estimates. Um, that uh, shows that um, in a total balance of trade, um, you know, analysis, um, U.S. GDP is almost completely unaffected by uh, unauthorized immigration. Mm. Um, I think the figure that he ended up with was negative point zero seven percent effect on the GDP, which is almost a wash. Um, now, to be fair, um, that figure is based on a model that includes um, a detriment to uh, the, uh, the the income of um, those low-skilled, uh, uh, you know, native 
low-skill workers. Um, They are definitely losing out in that evaluation. Um, But even there, the magnitude of the loss is not as great as people would think, simply because uh, given the dilution of uh, these unauthorized workers into the uh, overall body of the um, American labor force, um, they have a relatively minor impact. Um, And uh, I think found that between the years of 2000 and 2010, um, people in America with lower than a a high school um, education, this I think from a different study, um, had like a a 9% decrease in their income. Um, So it's not nothing, but at the same time, you know, it's not, it's not that dramatic. And also given the fact that larger economic forces have been creating, um, and you talk about uh, greater innovation, greater uh, move to automation, and uh, also um, offshoring of of jobs, Um, when we talk about the larger uh, dynamic of the global economy, um, have been disfavoring these jobs more and more anyway. Mm. Um, So it's admirable that they can um, isolate the effect uh, even uh, of, you know, unauthorized immigrants among this entire um, mix but uh, of forces but I, I would say that those jobs are kind of on their way out anyway in America yeah. except in the case uh, of you know the service sector um, where those are just jobs that you can't um, uh, uh, import elsewhere they have to be done locally no well give, give it time <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah maybe Elon Musk will figure out how to, <laughs> I mean, how to replace them with robots yeah maybe <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, that's what I would say about that. Um, I, I question back for you though, was that, um, the, the Borjas, uh, paper that you read, um, was that, uh, decrease on incomes across all, uh, jobs in the economy? Uh, if I remember right, it was, it was across all jobs in the economy. However, it was localized to the area around Miami uh, because it was centered around a uh, the mass migration out of Cuba, I think, uh, and so I, I I think he's he's putting it out there as a proof of concept that see in this in this local you know in the micro it it goes this way so if we expand it out to the macro it should go that way too mm-hmm. but again to 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 your point. Again, you, you start to lose some of that in, again, how many of these jobs are are being quote-unquote lost uh, versus how many of them are simply being, uh, are, are, are not being lost to a, a person. It's not being lost to an immigrant. It's not being lost to outsourcing. It's being lost to a robotic arm who can work 10 times more efficiently for you know, one one thousandth the price over over the course of twenty years, uh, and and then also, uh, even if there is a a a true overall uh, decrease in wages, you have to then bounce that decrease in wages off of uh, the overall decrease in prices, because it's possible for a nine percent decrease of wages. And yet, an increase in purchasing power. Because if prices go down by eighteen percent, your real wage has gone up. Yeah, you, you're effectively you may be making less in, you know, 
in real dollars, but you're making more money because mm-hmm. you can afford to buy more with the money you have. So that's one issue I, I never, never see them them get that far into the weeds in, in any media outlet, you know, anywhere where you do have to break that down. And over a long enough period of time, yeah, may, maybe the drop in prices doesn't compensate for the drop in wages. And that's something that would have to be addressed. But you, the, the, the main kind of sticking point in some of the, the literature I was reading was it's just talking about wages in a vacuum by itself, which to me I don't think does much good. Um, you, it, it'd be like talking about anything purely in terms of nominal price. Like, well, okay, sure, yeah, the price keeps going up, except not really because inflationary effects actually you know i I did it went into it on a episode a few weeks ago where if you look at the price of gas today we're actually paying less uh than we were back in the in i think 1959 uh nominal price is much higher because you know again 50 cents was worth a lot more back then uh but Overall, I think, uh, and and now I'm blanking. I think we're paying about 14 cents less per gallon than than the adjusted price from 1959. Again, it's that problem of looking at any number or any statistic in a vacuum. You 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 have to expand out the the kaleidoscope to the greater economy and see what's really going on. Yeah, I, I was gonna I was gonna mention that. Um, I did find also uh, in my reading. Uh, that um, when you add in the, the price reduction, um, even though the wage losses um, tend to be uh, a wash. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd expect that too among um, you know low skill workers, whether um, native or migrant, um, are going to be uh, are going to tend to uh, be represented in the uh, overrepresented in the lowest economic brackets of American society. And so just what I was talking about before, the concentration of price reductions among staple goods um, and among, uh, you know, certain areas of, uh, in the service sector, um, these are th- these are the things that uh, that category um, of the population, uh, those categories of the population are going to be buying the most, mm-hmm. uh, going to need the most. Um, and, uh, you know, okay, maybe if you're making I don't know, $19,000 a year, you're not going to be hiring a nanny for your kids uh, or having a professional company do your lawn mowing, mm. um, if you even have a lawn. Um, but you may still eat, you know, enjoy the, the odd, um, uh, like, trip out to the taqueria around the corner. Um, and the reason that that taqueria can afford to um, sell you a burrito for five, six bucks a pop, um, more now, if you live in Chicago or <laughs> some of the, some other cities. Um, but the, the reason they're able to stay competitive, um, and offer you a good price is because, um, sorry about that. Yep. Um, is because they may have, uh, a number of unauthorized workers, you know, uh, anywhere from the line to the, um, working prep in the kitchen to just washing the dishes. Um, and uh, that's how they're able to avoid the uh, 
the razor thin uh, profit margin from killing them in the uh, restaurant industry. Yeah. Um, so there, I'm speaking from a little bit more experience. Um, <laughs> happens to be where I uh, make ends meet currently uh, in the uh, service sector. So. Right. And then you had mentioned uh, earlier uh, of about um, immigration having an effect on overall innovation. So I, I guess where where does immigration contribute into that? Uh, in, in a number of ways. And here I think it's also important to talk about uh, categories of migrants that um, we weren't really considering as part of a discussion before. That is... Um, highly temporary migrants. Um, so among academic circles, because you have to remember that uh, along with you know training the future business moguls and um, technicians and creators, designers of the future, uh, academic institutions uh, in this country, um, at least the, the larger ones, the uh, better funded ones, a lot of uh, where they make their money at is in um, creating those uh, breakthroughs and innovation, which then enable uh, further advances in industry. Um, and then, you know, essentially owning the, the intellectual property on it, um, or you see academics actually reaching out themselves and, and starting these ventures. Um, so there's an intimate link between um, the innovation economy and academic institutions. Mm. Uh, and that's why you see you know, one of the biggest hubs uh, right now, um, uh, after Silicon Valley, obviously, um, for innovation is in uh, Boston, actually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially in the pharmaceutical space, um, robotics, um, a number of other uh, industries that you can talk about, um, all coming out of um, that uh Boston and, and the, the surrounding communities, because if you've ever been to Boston, Boston's actually tiny. Mm. Um, it's it's awesome, it, you know, but you talk about the comp composite of all the little towns around it. And in those towns, you have Harvard, you have MIT, um, you have uh, a number of other um, top-notch uh, institutions, which um, create those, uh, really generate those ideas um, and then you talk about um, the ecosystem that that creates. Um, and what we found is that uh, at the end of the day, you can't, um, you can't fully import ideas by themselves. Um, you can't offshore that. You actually need like, a hub of people working almost as, as like a super organism, mm -hmm. you can think of it, influencing each other, inspiring each other, building off of each other's uh, you know, successes um, to develop the breakthrough ideas, which um, I hate to use this term because it's so hackneyed at this point, but uh, disrupt industries. Mm. Um, those are the those are the million dollar ideas which have um, dramatically uh, led the, the growth in our economy, um, you know, and in, in, in providing um, good paying jobs uh, or really just um, the money that will eventually be distributed throughout the economy um, over the last, you know, two decades, three decades, I'd say. Um, and uh, the role of immigrants to that is essential because um, essentially you're taking uh, the cream of the crop from every nation um, who are coming here on a competitive basis because, because we have those great institutions, 
um, because we have a great legal framework for um, you know enterprises to start um, because we already have these high concentrations of uh, intelligent qualified people um, and also because we have a lot of rich people domestically that are willing to invest in new ideas um, we have all, all this stuff set up for them to come um, and innovate um, and start a venture and succeed um, and uh, that's that's the kind of uh, the characteristic story of the high skill immigrant in America um, and why you know it's important not only to allow that a porosity uh, cross-border porosity for um, visiting researchers to allow for conferences to happen um, from you know places all over the globe even the the quote-unquote terrorist nations not the Islamic nations mind you but the nations where terrorists are coming from mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I just read a story the other day about a kid in uh, Cameroon, in, in rural Cameroon, um, who won uh, the, I uh, can't remember the, whether it was Facebook or Google, but, you know, one of those two huge um, technology giants right now, they had a coding competition, um, global, you know, you could do it from anywhere, from any terminal, essentially. Um, and this is, you know, you're talking about a uh, 12, 13 year old kid in Cameroon in a rural district who, um, because of how cheap it is to manufacture computers now, had a home computer that he'd play around with. His father always thought he was wasting time. <laughs> um, Cameroon actually uh, has been going through um, a uh, political uh, censure of internet priorities in the um, I'm going to get this wrong, but uh, in the English-speaking portion of the country, um, whereas the French-speaking, I think, portion of the country is more um, loyal to the leading regime. Uh, so they were actually um, imposing, uh, you know, a, a shutoff of internet connection to the English portion of the country. And uh, this young boy had to uh, beg a ride uh, from his uncle to get to the next town where they had internet connection so that he could participate in the competition and he won. Hmm. Um, so that's that's the kind of openness that you have to have um, to usher in the, the you know the next um, billion dollar idea. You know the next Zuckerberg um, could have could be that kid could have been born you know uh, in in Africa because of the. Um, the dispersion of information, there's no reason why um, that can't be the case. Well, and then on the rather selfish side, uh, if, if, if that kid's destined to be the next Zuckerberg, uh, you know, he's, he's got the raw talent, he's got the, the idea to, to do it, and is, uh, is not allowed into the U.S., and then he's going to headquarter his company in Cameroon. And all the jobs that come with that, and the the economic benefits that come with that, stay in Cameroon. And I, I know I, I, I do have a pretty broad international audience, and I apologize for this every time. Sorry to be a mayor-centric, but uh, I live in the U.S. And so I wouldn't mind that kid being allowed to immigrate into the U.S., bringing his talent and his innovation with him, and thus setting up that next fill-in-the-blank, next Google, next Facebook, next PayPal here uh, so that the, the, the U.S. can domestically benefit from that. 
Um, again, it's I'm sure everyone out there in every country feels the same way and would prefer it to come to them. And, you know, that's the nature of competition. Yeah, and I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting hypothetical, but in reality, it's probably not going to be Cameroon. Mm-hmm. It might be Ethiopia. Yeah. I've heard that they've, they've actually got a, a nascent... Um, like tech sector um, in Ethiopia. Obviously, Nigeria is a huge economy in Africa. Um, so it doesn't have to be in North America. It doesn't have to be in Europe. It doesn't even have to be in the Pacific Rim. Um, there are you know places uh, developing and jumping off all the time. Um, but um, there are reasons why, there are structural reasons why uh, we see these um, uh, this kind of economy developing and um in the United States and in other places, um, and it has to do with the what I just mentioned, the, the educational institutions, um, and also the sort of like momentum uh, that we have uh, going for us, um, but also our legal framework, um, the uh, especially like intellectual property rights that we enjoy here in America. There are a lot of great things working in our favor, and I think we're just we just shoot ourselves in the foot when we um, try to. Uh, censure immigration um, and you know I don't this goes back to what you were saying before how uh, the media narrative kind of distorts what's really going on um, you know for better or for worse but often for worse mm-hmm. um, we if we rely too much on one or two streams of media we may get the impression that you know all immigration is bad because all of it is of the character of um, this sort of like distorted picture of unauthorized migration um, that we see in competition with domestic um, labor uh, and and then just sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because mm. you know? I think if you made this argument to anybody that like, hey, you know, there are high school immigrants that want to come here that want to work and add value to our society um, and, you know, create more jobs. Um, then I, I, I think anybody, any rational person is going to say, yeah, let's do that. You know, um, anybody that isn't constrained by uh, an ethnocentric or uh, nationalist ideology is going to say, yeah, let's do that because I want better opportunities for myself and for, you know, my kids, for my family. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's hard um, <laughs> with the, uh, uh, the media landscape that we, we face and the fact that um, people have almost been trained to have like a very short attention span. Well, and again, you know, I, I usually play, you know, in these episodes wind up placing the blame at, at the, the feet of the media and again, all media. But even then, the, the media is responding to the demand of the consumers and the demand of the consumers is that things be simple. Just give me the, the, the five minute version Tell me which one is good. Tell me which one is bad, so I can go on with my life. And and that's an attitude I can sympathize with. It's just not always productive. It's a, the issue is compression. Mm. Um, there, it's very difficult to, you know, compress. Um, some some issues are more clear uh, and forthright than others, and you can compress them. Uh, without losing uh, too much of the, uh, uh, the you know, the, the fine-grained detail um, or um, too much of the, the evaluation that you should have at the end of the day. 
Um, but it's like, you know, think about even uh, downloading a file. Like if it's compressed too much, it's going to sound like shit. Mm. And you're not going to, you know, your, your, your box symphony or whatever is, is going to, uh, you're never going to get the true uh, nature of it. It's just going to sound tinny, mm. you know, and uh, you'll come away with the wrong impression. Um, so the same thing with, with uh, analyzing any issue like this and trying to cut it down to talking points. I mean, talking talking points um, kill, you know, actual valuable analysis and thinking. Well, well they, they tend to not allow for nuance. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's another word I'm sure my listeners are getting tired of hearing from me. But honestly, the, the, the issue is complicated. We're talking about, again, you, you said, what, 43 million people? Something that uh, neighborhood, I think it's, yeah, 43.5, something like that. They're not going to be a monolith. They're not going to be one thing. They're, they're, there's going to be a lot of different things. And again, maybe you can go down each each subcategory and down, down the rabbit holes that, that uh, are formed there and pick out, okay, this kind of immigration's good, this kind of immigration's bad, uh, you know, in an economic sense. But again, unfortunately, that's just not the way the issue tends to get talked about. It, it gets talked about as immigration, thunk, good, or immigration, thunk, bad, uh, the, the whole thing. And uh, again, it's, it's not, I don't think it's doing any, you know, anyone from the, the viewing audience of U.S. media to, you know, again, their role in the overall economy. It's, I don't think it's doing anyone any good. To look at it in such a broad-based, uh, you know, method. So, um, to, to that point, um, thinking about it in a more nuanced way, I know that I've been representing immigration uh, as a wholly good thing, which I think in general it is, but I think, nevertheless, uh, in the way it's implemented in this country, um, you know, there are definite areas for improvement, and mm. the most important of which being um, you know, the, the vast population of unauthorized immigrants in this country um, need to have a path to citizenship um, because, for one, it's costing too much to police them. Um, there's very little economic uh, benefit uh, from, you know, uh, policing um, unauthorized immigrants in the way that we have uh, simply for being here illegally. Um, and uh, and then uh, working to you know uh, deport them. Um, it's a it's a vast monitoring operation uh, which is sucking tens of billions of dollars out of the U.S. Um, you know government uh, revenue every year. Um, and like I say, not much to be gained there. Um, I think we need to. Um, create avenues for people to migrate uh, legally and you know maybe it's as simple as expanding the the h2a and h2b programs um, and maybe even doing more than that maybe targeting them uh, a little bit more so that we get the right mix of low skill immigrants in the right places um, to suit business needs um, but you know we're also doing them a great disservice because they're participating in a uh, under the table economy um, which is, uh, and I know it's great for them because it's still more money than they'd be getting at home, but 
at the end of the day, they're earning sub living wage incomes, even worse than, you know, some of the worst uh, parts of our uh, country experience, uh, you know, the federal minimum wage is not a living wage in a lot of places. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and they're also losing out on the opportunity for uh, real advancement in this country. Um, you know, how about a system where we take that, take that, you know, H2A, H2B program, if you come back enough times, eventually we move you over to a status bump, like, you know, pre-green card status. Um, and if you keep playing by the rules, uh, we keep inviting you back. Um, and eventually you get a green card and your family can move or can hopefully your family is, has been able to live here the whole time. Um, that's something that can be negotiated. But um, obviously implementing something like that is a huge task, both um, from a central planning perspective and um, even more so from a political perspective. But it's um, just to say that I, I think that there are improvements that can be made. Well, and again, going back to the, the immigration being beneficial to the economy on the whole, generally speaking, uh, you know, more, more benefits are derived than costs, but there are costs. And, and part of me always wondered with, you know, it's, it never seems to be a good idea to fight against the tide. And we've succeeded in, in Thomas Jefferson's goal here in making a desirable country that people want to come to. Uh, so the tide tends to be running with, with people wanting to immigrate to the U.S. So we can spend a lot of time and money and effort fighting that to, to, again, protect domestic uh, workers. Or we could take the, the, you know, the money and effort that we're putting into pushing back against the tide of immigration and use that to compensate and, and uh, balance the losers in this equation, the people who do, in fact, lose their jobs because there's an immigrant who shows up who can do it cheaper. Um, Rather than again trying to block that tide and and again largely failing, uh, why not again put that effort into taking that domestic employ domestic worker and finding them a better job or creating a better job for them? To me, that always made sense because at least again in in most economics, pushing back against um, market demand is really never a good idea because it is what it is you can either meet it with supply or say that people are stupid for demanding that and go out of business yeah i mean um you know there's there there is the the thing that you run into which is that um were we to reduce the incentive for unauthorized immigration by offering a, a much broader um you know, worker visa program. Um, it would one of the big losers would be those industries that rely on uh, immigrant labor, mm. uh, um, you know, under the table uh, immigrant labor for uh, a cheap source of, of their labor. Um, so I think that would have to be titrated in some way um, because you're uh, you might see increases in domestic prices for various items, obviously, um, and you probably see some. Uh, industry failures, mm. some contraction. Um, but I still think, you know, 
on the whole, it would be beneficial because um, then these people are living in the light of day. Um, they be paying taxes at a higher rate, which by the way, something that a lot of people don't know is that even uh, illegal immigrants, um, not all of them, but many of them pay payroll taxes, um, even though they officially receive no um, you know, public services as uh, in return for that. Another thing that you think about, um, so uh, if they go down this far into the into the thinking about it, um, people worry about uh, broader distribution of public services to um, you know um, now formally unauthorized, uh, now authorized uh, low skill workers. Um, how will that expand? You know uh, the spending on uh, domestic services here. Uh, our public services here domestically, um, and uh, healthcare is a big issue. Uh, a lot of people worry about how are we going to like pro provide basic healthcare uh, for those people. How are we going to be able to afford it? Um, but I would argue that even there, um, there is a, an equilibrating force because right now it's not as if um, unauthorized immigrants never receive formal healthcare in America. They might not go to a primary care physician because they don't have health insurance, um, but that means that uh, alternatively, they will end up using emergency medical services, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the ER as their primary care physician, and they may go less frequently to the ER. But um, that's you know the the rate of expense of an ER visit versus uh, visiting a family doctor um, is so many multiples higher. Um, I don't know what the figures would be, um, but I have to think that at the very least, it's a significant um, balancing effect to mm. move people over to a, a system where um, they almost never visit an ER um, in, and instead go to you know, the Minute Clinic or go to, uh, to get their you know, vaccinations or go to um, their, their family doctor um, <coughs> who may even live in their own community. Mm. Um, so... There's a lot of things uh, to think about, um, and I, you know, it's it's a because of the breadth of this issue and and how many various considerations there are. I'm not surprised that um, we uh, have a distorted uh, picture of what's going on. Mm. I mean, I'm an economist, and I spent the last several days boning up for this uh, interview, and I'm I'm still confused. Well, and and again, it's the the problem with <clears throat> issues of the this complexity is. If you walk into this issue with a pre-existing bias, either for or against, you can find facts and figures that back up your bias. And you can just sit there and cherry pick them uh, rather than kind of accepting the issue in all of its complex, mind-numbing, you know, uh, glory. <laughs> that, yeah, it's... And, and again, you get into then... Even beyond, yeah, if, if we were to go with a uh, easier path to citizenship and, and, and allow in uh, uh, a uh, larger amount of immigrants, you can point to things like, well, again, is this going to put a burden on the U.S. healthcare system? And the answer is yes, with a but, because the but goes to, well, but you also will have, again, 
more people paying a higher percent of their income into income tax. So you're going to get additional revenue for that, which will then cycle in. Plus, with the higher demand for health services, you're going to need to build more hospitals, which is going to be a boon to the healthcare industry because now you have more customers. Um, and so would that the would the economic uptick that comes from that and the, the jobs created by that, does that compensate for the additional burden of more people uh, needing medical care. And again, this is, we're, we're talking about a, a granular part of this whole topic here where there are, are signif- potentially significant secondary and tertiary effects from it, where we're only talking about unauthorized, you know, flipping unauthorized workers to becoming authorized workers and their effect on the healthcare industry. That's, it's a small part of, of all the bigger, well, yeah. the much bigger thing. And careful now, Dave, because uh, if you don't watch out, you're going to get sucked into a de- debate about healthcare in America, which you <laughs> which, pro- probably already had an episode on. Which is, actually, I've been actively avoiding it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that, I don't... <laughs> it's, it's an important issue, but again, yeah. it's, it, it is an issue that is just filled with rabbit holes. You might want to get... And, and you can go down any one of them, and they're all perfectly valid they're all issues to be concerned with but it's such a massive issue it, it's the 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 problem uh it's like the problem with seeing an elephant you can't see an entire elephant from one one spot you have to walk around it because you're never seeing the whole thing um and yeah healthcare. uh on a national level, and it doesn't even have to be the U.S., any nation. The the healthcare on a national level is like trying to see the whole 700-foot-tall elephant because, it's it, again, it's there. there's so much tying into it um, that, again, it becomes mind-boggling at a certain mm-hmm. point. And, yeah, that's one that... I'm sure I'll get around to uh, healthcare episodes at one point, and we're not even talking about like a two-parter or a three-parter. We're gonna have to chop that like whole mini series. Yeah, that it'd be a whole whole podcast unto itself of let's Good just day. talk about the economics of healthcare. Yeah, and let's start with you know again because you have to chop it up into pieces. The the issue as a whole is be, so big. Call it, let let me tell you why you're sick. <laughs> <laughs> with with the uh, disclaimer that Davios is not a medical professional, <laughs> I can't actually tell you why you're saying. Uh, uh, I can guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which you know, I'm I'm probably I'll probably bat around the same as a WebMD. There you go. Uh, just tell everybody that everything's cancer. <laughs> That's not a bad guess. Uh, but no. So uh, any any last uh, thoughts on immigration? Uh, we we didn't get into talking about the border wall. Um, but in, in the character of the, the show, if you are pro border wall, let me tell you why you're wrong. Um, give me one second to find my, I, I prepared talking points, which I know is just what we were talking about not having, but <laughs> well, you do, you, you need a guy. Yeah. I need a, a skeleton. Um, so here, here are my thoughts on why, um, which are drafted from other people's thoughts on why the border wall is not a great idea. Um, first of all, the cost estimate is $21.6 billion, which 
I realize, what do we have, like a trillion dollar budget annually? Mm. But there's a lot of things in that budget, and about two thirds of it is not up for debate. So, you know, you have like a third of that for discretionary spending, um, which I believe this would fall into um, since we have no mandate to, mm. um, you know, provide a border wall. Um, the wall would not be uh, an effective deterrent against drugs trafficking, which is why I think a lot of people are in support of it. Um, why? Because there's tunnels under the border. Um, there are tunnels all over the place. The Mexican cartels are so good at building tunnels that they were able to escape the most wanted man, El Chapo, <laughs> out of the most secure penitentiary in Mexico, which has not only anti-earthquake sensing uh, equipment on its property to sense whether or not tunneling is an operation under it, um, but also um, artillery and like you know military personnel ringing the perimeter of it. Um, they tunneled, I think, like a quarter of a mile from a property that they built in the uh, vicinity and were able to make the tunnel terminate exactly under where El Chapo's uh, prison cell was. So putting a random uh, tunnel under anywhere on the somewhere uh, X spot on the uh, expanse uh, between uh, of the border between you know the United States and Mexico is not difficult for uh, mm. for these organizations just because of how much they stand to gain. Um, but uh, even if, when you talk about um, unauthorized immigration over the border, um, it would not really be an effective deterrent for that either. Words, uh, either. Um, for uh, for one thing. Um, there are already a lot of natural obstacles um, put in people's place when they consider crossing the border. You have deserts, mountains, rivers. Um, this slows people down um, because, you know, um, it's hard to hike over a mountain. It's hard to cross a desert, especially if, um, you know, you don't have, you have to carry all your water in with you. Um, swimming across a strong river is never easy. Um, a wall if anything, is just going to slow somebody down a little bit more. Um, there's always a way to get over a wall, despite the reports that, like, you know, they just had Marines, Marine, like, uh, squads trying to get across the, uh, the, um, the sample walls that they built. There are natural barriers that exist that uh, are already um, providing, a, a, you know, uh, the same service as a wall would. Um, you also have... Uh, the fact that you know the the wall is not really going to be effective unless there are additional, um, you know, personnel uh, in, uh, to patrol it. Um, because uh, ideally, what the wall does is slow immigrants down so so that they can be observed from border patrol agents or by border patrol agents and stopped. Um, and if you don't have additional personnel, then you know what good are you really doing? And Trump administration has already. Um, shown that it's not uh, willing to provide that necessary increase um, just through its, uh, you know, unrealistic uh, hiring uh, policy. They're um, putting a, a freeze on the um, on pay increases for employees and demanding, you know, 100% more uh, increase in uh, Border Patrol agents than uh, DHS has even requested, mm. um, which... How are they going to do that? If uh, how are they going to 
find that many people to take a job where they're going to be earning less than uh, they were before um, yeah. or expect to earn less than they would have before. Um, also, uh, they're talking about cutting back on um, remote video surveillance uh, funding, um, which is another way that the border um, you know, uh, works. Uh, so, you know, all, all those additional sensors that help to notify Border Patrol um, where uh, migrants might be coming through. Um, for those reasons, and I, I guess the point that you brought up. Well, uh, yeah, the, the statistic that always kind of uh, knocks me back is that apparently uh, of unauthorized immigrants into the, into the U.S., 40% of them come in through airports, which... You can't build a wall tall enough to stop that, right. um, because again, it is—it's people coming in on visas, letting the visa expire, and then just staying here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if physical obstacle really does much, and and you probably would then just start to see a shift between those—you uh, know—again, assumed sixty percent who are walking across the border uh, to just again buying a plane ticket coming in on a tourist visa and then not leaving yeah and i mean if um uh, you know there's 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 a big uh there's big business in uh ferrying these people across the border right um so if it becomes too expensive to go through uh go across the border wall um then you start talking about alternative options um the tunnels are always a possibility although traditionally cartels have been reluctant to share uh access to the tunnels um just because of the possibility of anybody going through being able to relate where they are, mm-hmm. um, you know, versus the the uh, profit uh, from uh, the, the the distribution of illicit uh, narcotics, um, it's too much of a risk. Um, but if that price point goes up, who knows? There's also boats. You know, yeah. you could just charter a boat and uh, sail, th- you know, through to the the Gulf of Mexico and drop somebody off there. Um, now. Now we're talking about increasing the costs uh, of spending for the Coast Guard. Um, are we just going to have a cordon of ships, uh, <laughs> like from Galveston all the way down to Brownsville or wherever the, you know, uh, the near... I don't know if Brownsville is inland, actually. That was a, a guess. But um, in any case, uh, it's uh, you just create more problems around it, more uh, expense. And like we've been talking about all episode... Um, at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot of economic gain. You're just, it's its like the, the economic tariffs that we're considering. Yes, it's going to support um, a few narrow interests. There will be some winners, um, but the overall balance um, is going to be uh, negative. You know, it's chasing good money after bad. Well, the losses in, in the form of, again, higher prices on all goods. But, uh, all right. Well, thanks for uh, coming on the show Uh, again. uh, Second appearance. uh, Happy to have you back. And, uh, yeah, thanks to all of you for listening. Um, Be sure to uh, join us on the Facebook page so you can tell both me and Dave why we're wrong. Uh, If you don't have Facebook, uh, you can always hit me up on email at okaylemmetellyouwhyyou'rewrong at gmail.com. All one word, no uh, no punctuation, no apostrophe, no comma. Uh, thanks to George Sacco for compu- composing the uh, music I use in the intro and outro. And uh, if you like what you heard, 
uh, feel free to uh, hit me up with a uh, rating and review on iTunes. Uh, really helps get the show noticed. Uh, with that, I've been Dave Yost. I'm Dave Ichik. And this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. It took her gym!